Hey coach, welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. Let's share the game. I'm excited to welcome sports performance coach Lee Taft to share the game with us. Lee Taft, known to most simply as the speed guy, is regarded as one of the top athletic movement specialists in the world. Over the past 25 years plus, Lee has devoted the majority of his time training multi-directional speed to all ages and ability. He has been the go-to speed training expert for everyone from NFL organizations and Wimbledon champions to up-and-coming youth athletes. Lee, welcome. Thanks, Chris. This is amazing. I've been so excited to be a part of this. Let's start with a real simple one, and that is why should a basketball coach consult with you, work with you? Why should a basketball player consult or work with you? Wow. I appreciate the question. I guess, you know, I'm a big fan of going to the source where I know People have put the time in. I've been in this for 32 years, a little over 32 years, and and I've spent a lot of time just studying human movement, and especially from the side of basketball. I, I was a player. I coached it. I've trained athletes at all levels, and and you know I've I don't have all the answers, but I figured a lot of things out. And I'm big on trying to make it easier for other people, and just you know take my experience and use it to fit your needs not that you have to do it exactly how i have to do it but i might make you think a little bit and sometimes that's the best thing is just think about what we're trying to do uh, that's exactly what we want to do here we want to stimulate people's thinking and as you said i love that idea of going to the source because i think as basketball coaches sometimes we assume we know the answer based on our experiences but we can get so much more from consulting an expert like yourself can't we I agree. You know, I do that. You know, when I, as a young coach growing up, you know, I was lucky. I grew up in a coaching family. I was constantly asking my dad or my brothers or, or other coaches that I had. And when I first got into coaching, I would ask my old coaches, my college coaches questions. Why not? Why, you know, if there's already been a success path, why wouldn't you want to follow that and make your life easier? Well, we don't want to spend too much time on your background, but I think we need to give perspective to coaches about why you are a movement specialist. So can you give us just a brief outline of your background? And coaches, I cannot encourage you enough. If you don't follow Lee already on social media, follow him, check out what he does, because you'll get a real perspective on the, the broad background that he brings to the table here. Well, thank you, Chris. Yeah. So I grew up as a phys ed teacher. That was my, my family. I'm the youngest of six. We're all teachers, three boys, three girls. And so I went into physical education right off the bat. I coached three sports. So what that did for me, Chris, and I think it's really important, is I was thrust in front of a lot of students and or athletes right off. So I'm having classes of 30 kids and having to try to figure out movement. And from my background being, a, you know, going through the you know, studies in physical education and biomechanics and all that, what I was able to do as a phys ed teacher was they were basically a lot of my guinea pigs, right? I could use a lot of the techniques that I use today back in the 80s when I first started teaching. And I just watched. I didn't have any preconceived notion. I just watched how these kids evolved from kindergarten through 12th grade. I watched them move and I did the same with my athletes. So that background set the stage for me to be able to become a better performance coach because I immediately was able to be put in front of, you know, a football team of 75 plus athletes and have no problem organizing and in running a training session. And I think that's one of the big drawbacks that some of our young uh, graduating students who come out of exercise science or performance or strength and conditioning is they're not comfortable dealing with groups. You're not going to go in strength and conditioning and deal with one on one very often. You might as a personal trainer, 
But if you want to be in the performance world or as a basketball coach, you're going to have at least 12 to 15 boys or girls on your team. And you're going to have to know how to manage that. Well, that was my background. So I started out as a young coach being able to do that. Uh, to do that. I spent a lot of years coaching different sports. I spent a lot of years in strength and conditioning, and I've owned five different training facilities known as a Speed Academy. And, uh, you know, and, and then over the last many years, I've been a consultant, traveled a lot around the world and, uh, and just shared my story. Well, it's such a great example. Just the diversity of athletes that you've worked with makes you, by nature, more of an expert because you've just been exposed to so many more you know, movement patterns, movement challenges, and movement solutions, and those things that go with it. And it's the same for a basketball coach that's worked with a variety of different athletes at different ages. You just experience and learn more from that, don't you? Exactly. And I think what happens is, especially as a basketball coach, because it's so skill-oriented, like I can hide a football player if they're tough. I can hide them in certain positions. Basketball, if you're on the court and you're unable to handle the basketball, and that just means catching it cleanly and keeping possession and maybe making a correct pass to an open hand. If you're unable to do that, it's really, really difficult. So I was exposed to coaching little kids. I mean, little first, second, third graders, all the way up to NBA level players. But because I was exposed to those younger kids, working with the older, more experienced player was much easier for me because I understood how important the basic fundamentals are, even at the highest level. Basic fundamentals never go away. Uh, it's great to hear. And uh, speaking of kind of the basics, then you're going to work with a basketball player, a group of basketball players. Let's say that because you've already alluded to that. What are some basic goals you start with? Well, one of the first things that I want all my players to be able to do is I want them to become really effective and efficient at what I call the seven movement patterns. So if we look at a basketball player, at some point, they're going to accelerate forward. At some point, they're going to sprint. Oh, they're going to get close to maximum velocity. If, they got a, if they're a, a wing and they went out on a fast break, by the time they get to three-quarter court, they're going to be pretty fast at that point. They're also going to move laterally, and they're going to use what we call a shuffle, a defensive shuffle. It's a defensive stance, and they're going to use a lateral run. Some people might call it a crossover. We call it a lateral run because you actually run with your lower body. Then you're going to have some kind of retreating. You're going to do a backpedal at some point. In transition defense, we often sprint, get to about half court. We do a 180, and then we go into some form of backpedal and either get into a glide step or whatever the next technique uh, is needed. And then we're going to have what we call a hip turn. So if I'm guarding you, Chris, and you make an explosive move, I, mean, I get to quickly open my hips, escape that space, and attack new space. So that's six movements right there. And then we all know we're going to have to be able to jump and land safely. So from my little kids to my elite players, if they have an established movement of those seven patterns, if they can do those well, now I can start stacking more specific advanced skills onto that because their skill set is already at a level that allows me to add more to it. So that's the foundation of basketball movement, in my opinion. Well, and coaches that know me know this question's coming, and that is that this still applies to physical training, just like what you're talking about in these movement skills, the difference between blocked versus mixing. And basketball is a mixed sport where you don't just do one thing at once, right? They're all mixed together. And in watching your stuff and looking at your stuff, this is a big part of your philosophy to mix these seven things together, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and I'll tell you, block training allows a coach 
to maybe work on a specific area, maybe a deficit or a low functioning area, they can approach that with a blocked method. I just focus on that one. It might be like shooting foul shots. You're just going to shoot the foul shot. That's it. But in basketball, it's all about having the ability to predict, perceive, read what's going on, and then make a quick decision. So in one three-second play, I could go from a closeout to a hip turn to a shuffle, stop, go back into a closeout because that player did a step back and then jump and land. All within three seconds, I hit about five different movements that forced me to be able to stay in that offensive player's space if I did that as a defender. The offensive person could do the same thing. So it's the, the, the greatest skill a basketball player can learn is reading because the better I get at reading my opponent subconsciously, and we know this through science, we actually, the act of moving starts before we realize it. And we're talking milliseconds because the brain reads it and it fetches that pattern. And that's because of recognition. And how do I get better at recognition? I have to play more. I got to get more experience. I have to be exposed to it more times. And as a coach, I have to be okay with failures because failures are the brain's way of creating learned patterns. But we have to fail at first, and then we start to establish the patterns. Well, in, in my world, perception, decisions, proceed, skill execution. So you're saying the exact same thing you know, which goes to movement as well. And that's great that we can speed ourselves up by having better perception in the game of basketball. And I love that you incorporate that as well. So it's not just this isolated training that's separate from the game, right? Yeah, exactly. And here's what happens. And this is where coaches get frustrated. They want practices and drills to look really pretty. They look nice. Everybody claps and it all looks good. And the passes were perfect. It's a shell drill and no defense. Well, what happens is... When the brain isn't learning, there's no longer these synapses being formed. And synapses just for everybody, that's just what carves the pathway for us to have a, to have a memory of a pattern or a program. So if we're not making the athletes have to make decisions, maybe it's just a pass and a cup. Well, if I have a defender on me and that defender jumps in front of me versus staying in front of my body line, well, I have to read that. Maybe I make a face cup. But if they jump in front of me up the line, now I'll do a quick backup. But I don't know that until I'm put in that situation. So the more you make your athletes read, being okay with a little bit of ugliness, then you're going to establish a better prepared player when games come around. Again, I don't want to win practices. I want to win games. I don't want to just be successful in practice. I want to be successful in games because ultimately that's why we're doing it unless we're a performance coach and we're only trying to get them ready for that. But if I'm a coach, I'm trying to be successful. So everybody's happy. So I imagine there's a huge focus on your part for basketball specific movements. You're not taking football. You're not taking volleyball. If we're trying to develop basketball players, we're working on basketball specific movements. Yeah, exactly. And what happens is, so if we go back to those seven patterns, okay, seven patterns transcend all sports, but basketball makes me carve out specific movements that are very specific to basketball. Like I can't be in an offensive lineman stance to play basketball. I have to be in a basketball stance that affords my arms to be very active, allows my legs to be able to either shuffle, laterally run. I can hip turn. I can quickly go from a defensive stance to a closeout and maybe jump late, but to get my hand up into a shot. 
that gets established the more I play. And the more I cue athletes, the more I can establish the stances and the postures that they need to be a better basketball player, for sure. It's great stuff. And, uh, you know, you talked about those seven things. So uh, maybe let's start with that. And, it, and we know there's specificity of training and there's individual differences. So we have to talk in general terms just for the sake of the conversation. But of those seven things, which ones can you most impact? I'll tell you why. I obviously linear acceleration is the most familiar to the human. Okay, we get that it's forward. We're going straight ahead. Um, we understand if we just push hard enough, we start changing inertia, we start changing our body, and we can accelerate quickly. So that's an easy one. But but I can honestly say the one that I've impacted players' movements the best, and it's primarily from the defensive end, but it does happen offensively, is the hip turn. And the reason I say that is a player who does not hip turn well and doesn't escape space and defend their space really well, it's very obvious. It's kind of like a cornerback in football who just gets torched all the time. You're on an island. So if I'm picking my opponent up at half court and nobody else is within 25 feet of me, it's pretty obvious if I can't keep that player in front of me. But if I have a really explosive hip turn, that allows me to, to escape space, attack new space, which would be where my opponent went. Gosh, it really impacts the, the presence of that player as a defender. And it impacts that offensive player thinking, gosh, I can't get by this guy or this girl. They, they just cut my angle off. That's, I think, one of the big ones that impacts players probably more than any other one. Yeah. It's so fun to hear this and to, and to get your perspectives on it. And, uh, We've kind of got to go right to one of the controversial ones, which is the defensive closeout. Again, this is something that basketball coaches have formed their own ideas on. And I've always said, why not just ask a strength and conditioning coach, what's the best way to run fast and stop fast? Yeah, that's so. So this is one thing that I long, long time ago, I from watching and just studying and being my own guinea pig and doing it, I just I. I, I kind of paid attention. I'm saying, gosh, the way we're doing this hasn't really been the most successful way. We talk about physics and we talk about biomechanics. So when I raise two arms up, that immediately raises my center of mass. And what it does is it pulls my hips underneath me. So if my hips get pulled underneath me, now I'm a little bit less effective on moving in any other direction, right? Plus, I don't need two hands high. I need one hand high to trace the ball or to get up and defend the shot if I jump late on, on their jump shot, but it affords me to stay in a good stance. Now to go from a help position. So let's say I have one foot in the lane and my opponent that I have to get to, the shooter, is about three feet beyond the three-point line. So once the pass goes there, I'm gonna use probably two explosive acceleration steps somewhere in that range. I'm gonna start with what we call a pop step, push, open, push. So I push with my, my foot in the lane, I open my foot closest to the, to the shooter, and then I run through that. Okay, so I get two hard steps. And then what we try to do, if I'm forcing baseline, or if I'm forcing middle, that depends on the defense uh, a call, whatever the coverage is that you've been taught. For this uh, sake, I'm gonna push to the baseline. So I'm gonna close out a little bit on the higher side, so I'm kind of negating a quick, hard drive to the middle. They're gonna have to loop, and I want them to do that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take probably one or two gather steps, not choppy steps from like seven, eight feet out and chop, 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 chop. I'm not going to do that because 
There's too many potentials for mistake with the footwork plus you're starting it too soon. I want to close that gap quickly and I'm going to be open slightly knowing that my help is to the baseline side, but I'm going to be able to push them to the baseline and get in their bubble quickly. Again, Chris, you and I know this, that comes down to scouting. If it's a non-shooter, then I don't have a problem of closing the bubble too much. But if it's a quick catch and shooter, I got to get in the bubble and at least drive them off the shot. Maybe they do another pull up or something, but I have to do my job first by closing that space, couple quick hard steps, one hand high, a gather step or two, kind of like a like I'm decelerating in an offset jump stop, and then be prepared to make the next move. Now, once I've done that with my players, I give them individual freedoms to decide when they're going to start in that because I can't make every player do it the same because not everybody has the same strength level. So again, it's the coach's decision where they force the ball. It's the coach's decision what they do with their hands. But essentially what you're saying is, Choppy steps, which have been traditionally taught, are not the most efficient way and the most effective way. And I think that's normal. Like when I when I line up a player against me and I say, let's race until someone blows the whistle, neither of us stops with choppy steps, do we? Yeah, that's just not natural. And yeah. that we try and get players too often to do unnatural movements. Another example with that would be traditional defensive slides with these shuffles instead of sprints and turns. Can you talk about that as well? Absolutely. So again, it comes down to that perceptive uh, talk we had earlier. If uh, if the offensive player is shuffling slow, or excuse me, uh, dribbling or driving slower than you know their their maximal speeds of of that acceleration, well, I can probably shuffle. I can stay squared up just because they haven't challenged my front shoulder yet. But the minute I feel like my front shoulder is being challenged. Now I'm gonna go into what we call a lateral run. I'm gonna run keeping my upper body as level as possible or squared off to them, but I'm gonna let my lower body gain as much speed as possible to be able to take away a direct drive to the basket. That's a very perceptive skill. So one of the things I'll do with my players is we'll have them shuffle until the player goes as fast as they can. Then they immediately transition into a lateral run to cut off that angle. And here's the problem, because I've been hearing this a lot lately. I've heard some major Power Five conference teams and even some NBA saying, we don't even teach shuffle anymore. And I'm like, well, no, you, you got to teach shuffle because the shuffle is relevant in a lot of areas in the game of basketball, not just on the ball. The ability to shuffle well is important because it gives them more options. When speed becomes the overwhelming factor in that offensive player starting to beat them, we instinctively go to a lateral run, okay? That's, that's just part of fight or flight and, and our attacking mechanism. So I think we have to be able to do both. The main thing is biomechanically, we have to do it correctly. So the other part that goes with that, say defending on the ball now and a player attacks off the dribble versus me covering and on the ball, that we traditionally, again, taught this lateral movement, but what actually you see players do without even being taught it naturally is a push back and laterally. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because again, that's something that I think is so undertaught is the ability to be able to push backwards. Yeah, to be able to open up and create separation because the offensive player, if they're taught right, wants to create early contact if possible and, and create a feel for where they are. And if the defender is capable of opening those hips enough and pushing back and creating some space 
allowing them to stay in front of the ball. Okay, so I can stay in front of the defender, but if I stay in front of the ball, now I've taken away um, the ball's vision. In other words, they want to do a pocket pass, but if I'm in that angle, I take that away. But if I'm too close, good offensive players sense that and feel it, and they'll spin out of that. They'll they'll pull back off and then reattack another angle. So I want to have that ability to move laterally, but also create some separation so that I don't get caught. Now, having said that, if we're in a situation where maybe it's a a tight pick and roll situation, and I can do a little bit of contact shuffle where we use our sternum, show our hands, but they come into my sternum, that's different. But in most situations, I want to have a little bit of separation so that I can create a better, well, angle for me to be able to stay in front of that offensive player. Right. The goal is to keep the gap. And ironically, modern analytics supports this idea that we'd rather give up the pull-up than the layup or the three. And that's part of this mentality and part of where movement specialists like yourself can help us teach it better in that way. The other one is this movement from help, which you already referred to, to recovery to your check. And I was taught through all my movement studies and everything like that, that anytime we can engage the hips in a movement, we are more powerful because that is the most powerful muscle group in our body. So is there truth to that, that we'd rather cross over in recovery than slide in recovery? Absolutely, because what we have to do is we, get, we have to understand the perception of the, the, your, the player that you're guarding. If they are catching the ball with you already in their pocket, okay, that's a different feel than them catching the ball and you're still closing out on them or you're still closing the gap. Now they have options. So I, if what we teach is, again, let me give a, a kind of a view for the, for the listeners. If I'm guarding the, a wing on the right side, so my right foot is in help position and I'm inside the lane, the ball gets reversed. Rather than shuffling laterally, like a defensive shuffle on that first step, I want to push off my right leg, allow my left leg to open up. Now I'm engaging hips, quadriceps, which are my acceleration muscles. If I'm a track athlete coming out of the blocks, that's what I want to do, right? If I'm a track athlete. So in this case, I want to get that left leg open. Now I explode off that left leg, use my hips, use my quads, push down and back, and that right leg takes a big, strong, powerful step to start closing the gap. Now I start reading. How many more steps can I take before I have to start to get into more of my my gather step or my breakdown position to close out? But if you shuffle first, you're always going to be a step slower just because the shuffle isn't going to allow me to cover the ground. Now, if I was five feet from them, not a problem. But if you're 10, 12 feet in help position, if you don't push and open, use those hips and quads to drive, you're probably going to be a little bit late. So another thing I grew up with, and I love that we're busting a lot of myths here too. I grew up with this concept of this long first step when you dribble the first time you dribble the ball after catching the ball. And, you know, if you go into any literature, it talks about how inefficient that is. So can you break that down for us and talk about why we shouldn't have this long first step when we're trying to beat someone off the dribble on first catch? Absolutely. Yeah. So the the whole goal is to chase your shoulders, right? And I want to push my shoulders into space. So if I'm going to go by you, I want to push my shoulders by you. I don't want to push my belly button by you like my chest is way up, right? I want to push by. Now, if I asked you to push against a wall, 
you wouldn't put your toes up against the wall. You would have your toes way away from it. You'd be leaning into that wall, creating an angle to push. Well, that's because you can create the most force down and away from the direction you want to go. If I want to blow by you to the right, I'm going to push down and back behind my or under or to behind my hips. If I'm taking that big, long step, and I was a sandy, I remember in the 70s growing up playing, and they all had us doing these long step, and I felt like I was climbing a mountain. I'm trying to pull myself up the hill. <laughs> Absolutely. But, exactly, yeah. So what happens is we want to create a shin angle that is very consistent with my upper body angle. So let's say my upper body was at a 45-degree angle. Well, I would like my lead leg shin angle to be the same, pushing down and back, which which forces me to chase my shoulders forward. Now, I can easily get out of that. All I do is what we call a repositioning action. I just would, if I, maybe I want to do a step back off that. I would just bring my, my back foot back up, turn my hips a little bit, and I could pop off that. But if I don't push down and back, really I'm putting a lot of energy into just going up. And I don't want to go up. I want to go by my defender. So push down and back, positive shin angle, and match it as much as possible to the upper body angle. Love it. And uh, another thing I've got to get into a little bit is dribbling. And I, I, I phrase this for everyone, anyone I ever coach, dribbling is a footwork drill. And that's number one. It's a footwork drill. And too many people teach dribbling in this really static way when dribbling is very dynamic. And most of that has to do with two things I want you to talk about, which is weight transfer and multi-positional foot positions or multi-dimensional foot positions, which are so important to dribbling moves. Absolutely. I'm so glad you asked that question because, again, it goes back to reading, right? An offensive player is reading the whole time, and then they decide what they're going to do. Dribbling is about moving the ball into different spaces that allow me to be able to, to push myself into that direction. So I have to be able to have the ability to push the ball where I want to go. And I do that by using, obviously, my hands. My hands have to be able to massage inside, outside, behind, in front of the ball to be able to move it in that direction. But that has to coincide with my footwork. So if, let's say, I just, I'm trying to get into a play. I'm trying to get the ball to my wing who's coming off a double screen, but I'm getting a lot of pressure. I might have to do a little quick side dribble or a step or a pullback dribble. Well, that all starts with my footwork creating almost like a defensive shuffle, but with the ball in my hand. So I'm gonna create this big separation pattern. I'm gonna be able to get almost kind of like an inside out version of the dribble so I can pull it back behind my, my backside hip. That helps me create space. The multi-directional concern of dribbling is about repositioning the feet quickly. A perfect example is, if I want to do what we might call like a slide to a crossover. So I'm just going to do like a slide to the side, almost like a shuffle. I'm kind of high and I'm just pulling you along with me. Maybe I'm on the wing and I'm pulling you along with me towards that baseline. And then I'm going to quickly plant my outside leg, drop my center of mass and perform a night, what I call a sweep crossover, a nice low crossover underneath your guard hand. And then I'm going to change directions quickly. Well, that dribble, is very fundamental. It's just simply a crossover. That's all it is. But what made it realistic and made it very dangerous for a defender or for the offensive player to use is my ability to use my feet and quickly plant to stop my momentum one way and push in the new direction. 
Now that crossover becomes this exciting, explosive attack dribble that with bad footwork just looks like a normal static dribble. I'm so happy we're talking about this in this way. And just again, stimulating conversation, stimulating thinking. And uh, at least we think coaches aren't doing anything right. They're doing a lot right. <laughs> but sometimes we can just add these little pieces that you're talking about to help players. Because I think, again, so much of what you're talking about, players do them naturally. In the absence of coaching or despite coaching, players do a lot of these things naturally because they've found the most efficient way for themselves, haven't they? Yeah. Well, what do, what do we do as, as human beings is we have an environment that we live in and we have to accomplish a task. So the, the environment is, uh, you know, whether it's a high school court or a, a professional court size or whatever, that's the environment. There happens to be nine other players out there that I have to work with or against. Now, as I'm exposed to it more, I start to figure things out. This is void of coaching. I grew up playing in the parks, right, in New York, and we, we went to the park and we played. I was, I was fortunate enough when I was like seventh, eighth grade, the men allowed me to play with them at the night games. The night games were the seven o'clock games when the lights came on and you were good enough, you could get out there. Well, I didn't have a coach then, but what I figured out quick, if I wanted to stay on the court, I had to handle the ball. I had to be able to pass. I had to defend and I had to score when I had a chance to score. So you figured it out really quick. And the other thing that we are very good at as human beings is watching and absorbing what we see. So I would watch the better players do what they did, and then I would try to mimic that when I had some free time in my, my driveway. And so if we have coaches that are trying to help, they're most powerful when they use what I call guided discovery, okay? You, if an athlete doesn't know what to do, you gotta teach them. But if they have an idea, but you can help them, you guide them in that direction and let their brain start to figure it out. But if you tell them everything, they really haven't established a motor program that they can use because they're just waiting for more information from you. You have to let them go, let them fail, and just don't let them get off the track too far. And that's when we establish really good athletes that we see at our highest level. So wait a minute, you were able to learn without a coach. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know, and it's unfortunate because, I mean, we jest about it, but and we, and we don't like to talk generationally. I mean, this generation is better than the past generation. They yeah. just have more access to things and all that other stuff. But what we've done as adults is often we've taken away those opportunities for them to have these guided discovery or these moments to be able to lead themselves and learn from themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think what happens is where we see, like like you said, you're right on, athletes now big, fast, strong, powerful, quick, when pressures are low and they're playing in games and they can play free, they're really, really good. But one thing that I found is that because they were taught by a skill coach a lot or they, they were in a, a very cocoon-like environment where they just didn't have as much exposure to just random players on the street that, that were really good players and had a lot of tricks up their sleeve, what happens is when a minute left in a game and there's a lot of pressure, all those guys don't always show up, right? Because now it's about using intelligent movements that they learned on the street, just like futsal players who grew up on the streets in Brazil and barefoot and just played. Well, when the game's on the line, they play and they do the most amazing things. So a lot of these players nowadays, not that they're not amazing and they can do things, but I think sometimes, and I've seen this with some of my players, when the moment gets really tight, they get really tight. 
as where the player who just just doesn't care, they're comfortable with what they've learned and they they taught themselves, they're very relaxed and able to just do what they've already done. Relaxed is so key. And, uh, you know, it might be too late for some coaches if they don't have young kids. But if you have young kids, I can say this. Physical literacy just isn't taught the same as it used to be in our education systems. And we don't want to get into the reasons why. But you can compensate for that by the playground. The playground is the best place to take your kids to develop this kinesthetic awareness and all these different things that go with it, isn't it? And I even said so far that we just talked about parkour with our kids all the time. When we used to travel and anywhere they were, it became a place where they could move their body and lift themselves and do all these different things that just help them understand their body. And we need to create those experiences for kids, don't we? Oh, I agree 100%. Matter of fact, my my daughters, they both played college basketball, one still playing, and they grew up, they did gymnastics when they were little, and they did, you know, track and tennis and, you know, soccer and all the other sports. My son was in a course called uh, Ninja Zone. Ninja Zone was the franchise. It was a little gymnastics, but a lot of climbing, a lot of stunts, a lot of running off a wall and landing in a ball pit and climbing on stuff. And I'm telling you, that helped him just understand, like his vestibular system went wild. He understood where he was in space. So now he's playing, you know, flag football and soccer. He's 13 now, he plays basketball. He plays all these other sports. And a lot of them, and plus he, you know, I've exposed him to a lot and his sisters have, it just comes easy to him because he moves his body really well. And being a phys ed teacher, I could just pinpoint the kids who just didn't get any additional play outside of that 30 minute to 45 minute phys ed class. And it was really apparent that they didn't have physical literacy. So that was my job just to expose it to them and let them develop over time. On the subject of youth coaching and specifically basketball youth coaching, can you help coaches understand a little bit more that basketball is a late development sport and that for every kid prepubescence that looks amazing, it's really that postpubescent phase that's going to determine so much of their long-term success in the game. So can you just talk, frame that a little bit for us? Oh, gosh, well, that breaks my heart when I see programs and I'm seeing one right now, local where we happen to live, where fifth, sixth, seventh graders are getting cut from their team because they're not very big, maybe not very strong yet. And you, as well as I, have seen these guys in their 20s that got cut young, but they're the best player at lunchtime at the rec league. They just dominate. They do stuff because they develop. They matured at 18, 19, 20 years old. Well, this happens a lot with kids where all of a sudden they reach like 17, maybe the end of their junior year or going into their senior year. And all of a sudden they get stronger, which brings confidence. They've continued to play on their own. So their skills are really starting to shine now. Plus the brain is starting to really organize all those pre-movement and physical literary uh, uh, activities they did into a specific basketball literacy now because they've stayed with it. But it takes time. This is why we're fearful of these kids getting their driver's license at 16 because we know the brain doesn't develop till later and decision-making does it. Well, same thing athletically. These kids need time. And if we take away the mental and the physical contact, in other words, we cut them or we say, no, 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 you, you try next year, you know, or whatever. We are missing a lot of diamond in the roughs. And not only that, every kid, if they have the desire to play, should find a level where they can have good, fun basketball and as competitive as they want to go. 
Coaches, a brief interruption from the podcast to talk about Hoopsalytics. With basketball season approaching quickly, do you have an affordable, powerful stats and analytics system in place yet? Rather than overspending on the same old antiquated stat system, you can get cutting-edge video link stats and deep analytics at around half the price you're paying now. Hoopsalytics analysts will break down games for you so you can instantly measure the effectiveness of your players, lineups, and player combinations. And you can add tracking for your unique plays, sets, and actions to see what's working and what needs to be improved. You can even measure shot quality and things like contested and uncontested shots to improve your offensive points per possession. Features like interactive shot charts, game timeline visualizations, assist maps, and more makes Hoopsalytics an invaluable resource for coaches of all levels. Discover how Hoopsalytics can help you save money and make better data-driven coaching decisions. Visit hoopsalytics.com slash ball today to learn more and start analyzing your games for free. That's H-O-O-P-S-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot com slash ball. Our goal should be retention, and that should be players enjoy playing the sport at a really young age because, as you just said and you alluded to, we don't know what's going to happen to them when they go in that post pubescent phase. And I, I just love that phrasing that you use there. Uh, I'm going to throw out another example that I, I would love to hear your thoughts on. And this is this concept of this perfect technique, which I think we're too obsessed with as coaches, especially let me give you an example, the layup. Like if I was to teach my 10 year old daughter, the layup, the way we traditionally do, then there's only one way to learn it. And there's only one way to do it. And you have to have this perfect footwork. But isn't it ultimately better that she never has perfect footwork and she just develops more of this awareness of her body around the rim? Oh, gosh. Without, I would say the, one of the most important things beside reading is versatility, is bandwidth, is, is variety of a, a skill set. So to your, let's stick with the layup for a second. If a, if a player has the ability to scoop layup or extended layup, or maybe a semi-arc layup up high, if they figure out that's how they can get that shot off and they're very comfortable doing it, knowing there won't be repercussions if they try that, that's when they grow. Because we, we sometimes we underestimate that athletes know when they do things wrong. Like they might fling up a shot and in our head we're thinking, oh my goodness, what was that? Well, they know that too. Like they get it. They, they know. I mean, they know that wasn't a great shot. So you have to give them a little bit of space. Let them figure it out. Maybe say, hey, think about this as you're going in there. Great idea trying to hook that, but we got to get control of that hook, right? And so I think the perfect type of skill concept stifles growth because what is perfect? I'm five foot 10 and I played college basketball, going in for a layup when I have a 6'8 guy rotating over and help, if I do the traditional layup, that ball ends up in the fifth row, right? <laughs> but if I learn how to do a runner a couple steps before he gets near me, or maybe I go into a reverse layup or something like that, well, that gives me the ability to get shots off and the ability to create plays. If I was stifled in that, and again, this goes back because I did this on the courts play in the playground. I didn't do it in a gym with a coach. I did it because I had to, because I was, you know, I was probably five foot tall as a freshman in high school. So I had to figure out how to score. So I agree with you hundred percent being perfect. We want to, we want to execute biomechanically sound so that we're, we have better opportunities, 
but there's a lot of bandwidth in that. That there's there's not a set way to do any of those things. We have to allow that. Well, and it speaks to like a great finisher like Kyrie Irving. I mean, he oh. he developed that through experience. Yeah. He was spending an immense amount of time experiencing his body, experiencing the ball at the rim and just figuring it out. And that's such a powerful, powerful tool, isn't it? Oh, without a doubt. And can I give you an example? And not to, I'm not trying to, not trying to name drop or anything, but my nephew is a, it was an NBA player by the name of Jimmer Fredette. Okay. Now Jimmer played at BYU, was the player of the year back in 2011, but Jimmer had an uncanny ability to get shots off. He just loved, but when he grew up and he started training with me when he was, you know, six, seven, eight years old, well, one of the things we did is like, I taught him how to juggle. I taught him, like he would do things where he had to close his eyes and I'd yell and throw a ball so we had to go catch it. We just did fun activities, things of that nature. He had a, an older brother, about seven, eight years older than him, that would make him run down a dark hallway. And then he would, he would you know, throw a ball out and he had to find the ball or catch it. So he grew up doing all these things. Plus, he was good enough to play with men at a young age because he could shoot like crazy. Well, he had to figure out how to get shots off, even though he wasn't, you know, he wasn't going to go in and dunk over you or he wasn't going to be the Kyrie Irving ball handler. But man, I'll tell you, trying to stop him from scoring was very difficult because he created and he had that flexibility to create shots for himself. Such a great example, because I think we can all picture him never being in the perfect footwork position or the perfect square position and never like this perfect release. It was always variable releases. And yeah, I mean, he figured it out through that, but he also has such an incredible awareness of his body and the efficiencies of that. And I think that's the part that you're doing a great job here helping us connect. And uh, I'd like to go into one other area, and that is deacceleration, which I think is also often under misunderstood and not taught as one of these world-class skills for basketball players, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, think about some of the moves that these players make. We, we, we look at the explosive side of it. That's what's stuck in our head. But it, what it's set up by that quick deceleration move, that quick change. I mean, look at the, the top offensive players in the WNBA and the NBA and Europe and, and, you know, South America, wherever you see these great players that have that ability just to stop on a dime. Well, when we break it down, when we break down deceleration, it's a product of what we would call eccentric loading. So for the listeners, eccentric just means we're making the muscle stretch. It's putting on the brake. So it's going to get a little bit longer. Now, when we jump, we call that concentric. The muscle shortens and it creates a lot of force. Well, this force called eccentric is if, if we're really good at that, And we have the musculature to do that. And we have a nervous system that allows us to do that. And we have the coordination to allow us to do that. What it turns into, Chris, is it looks faster because we go from deceleration to acceleration very quickly. The the young, and we've all coached those junior high athletes in a growth spur, they try to put the brakes on and five minutes later, they finally stop, right? They're the ones, these long little skinny legs, and they try to decelerate but they just, they don't have the coordination yet. Or maybe they've gone through a growth spurt where their central nervous system is saying, all right, I'm trying to figure this out with you and I just can't do it. So having a distinct system on how to teach deceleration, whether it's a jump stop, offset jump stop, a lunge stop, a shuffle stop, or a traditional, what we would call a rotational stop. That's like a, like a, a UCLA drill or line drills where you change direction. 
those are all predicated by how well you decelerate, load the body, and then re-accelerate. So, you know, footwork and those things that we do talk about as coaches are really important in this process. And then also understanding the value of this action reaction, right? When I drive my foot down to stop, I get power back. And then obviously I don't want to pause that power. So can you just quickly touch on that? Because I think that's such a such a relevant thing to us as basketball coaches. Yeah, without it. So let's all picture Russell Westbrook. That's action reaction. That's stretch shortening cycle. If you want to think about someone putting their foot in the ground quickly and, and all of a sudden they're gone. What Russell Westbrook, and there's many other players there that you can, but he's one that sticks out in my head because he just, it's almost like he touches the ground and one of those pneumatic springs throws him into the air. He just so explosive. But here's the thing. I would be willing to bet, and I've never worked with Russell, but that he has tremendous stability in his joints. So the ability to put your foot into the ground quickly on a cut or a quick, maybe a one-two pull-up jumper or whatever it is, the ability to put your foot in the ground quickly and have that body stop and then reverse its effort and go again, that's what's creating the stretch shortening cycle. The, 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 the tenderness unit, the tendons and stuff get on a really good stretch. The muscle feels that as well, but then there's that stored energy that gets released. So when we have Kyrie doing one of those between the legs crossover around the back and next thing you know, he's gone, that's the stretch shortening cycle allowing him to get by you and do that. And the other thing to remember, and this is a myth that I've worked hard for probably 25 years to get coaches to understand. The straighter the joints are, the quicker the athlete. The more knee bend and hip bend, the more power. Power isn't necessarily fast on a basketball court. Elasticity is fast on the basketball court. So when my, my foot and my ankle's loaded, but my knee is bent slightly, my hips are bent a little bit, that's when I hit and I go fast. That's why world-class sprinters run very tall. The more they squat, the longer they're on the ground, the longer it takes them to get off the ground. So we need to be able to plant on angles that allow us to be somewhat stiff and then be able to respond off the ground quickly. Okay, coach, we got to stay here longer because I, I, this is something that's frustrated me since I was a player. This deep knee bend, this necessity to be so low that we're obsessed with as basketball coaches, but it's actually counterproductive. And really that's more that half squat. I call it actually wet toilet seat position. You go yeah. to a public washroom, you don't want to touch the seat, but you got to get close enough that you're going to hit your target. That type of mentality that goes with it. Can you just dive in deeper? Because too many coaches are just obsessed with low, 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 low. Oh, gosh. Probably about a month ago, I did a, a post on this, and I talked quite a bit about this. We, when I grew up, we were taught to be 90-degree knee bend, sit down, flat back. We all look good for a picture, and none of us could move. We all we were all kind of stuck there. Now, so now true. We, yeah. So what we have to do is we got, again, the, the – Human biology and like biomechanics, it doesn't lie. There's human laws of movements, gravity and force application and actual doesn't lie. We got to honor those. So when I have my players get in a defensive stance and move, I just watch them move at first. And I had a player not too long ago. They actually, he and his brother flew from Texas, spent a couple of days with me and I trained them. One's a college basketball player. The other one's uh, high school. And they're both very good players. One of them sat really low and he said, this is the way we were taught. And he struggled to move quickly because he was always fighting his own body mass. The brother who was a little bit less uh, strong, not as powerful, was higher. But man, was he quick because he was he hit stiff angles, 
great position, but he was probably, I would say, uh, closer to like about a 30 degree knee bend. Very quick, kind of like you would see Michael Jordan sometimes. Michael Jordan wouldn't always bend really low, and but just very, very quick. So what happens when we get really low it's taking a lot of energy, a lot of muscular energy. It's fatiguing. And think about it. I have to overcome that weight. Okay. I have to overcome those joint angles. So I'm not using levers very well. And the last point I'll make, and everybody will understand this. If I went into a squat rack and I put a bar on my back and let's say it was 400 pounds, well, I might be able to stand up with it and bend my knees about a fraction of an inch and do okay with that. But if I tried to bend that 10 degrees, 12 degrees, 20 degrees, I'm probably going to get squished like a pancake because it takes too much effort. Well, in a relative sense, that's what you're saying to these young players or even these older players when you have them bend their knees too much. Gravity is crushing them down, plus their body weight's pushing them down, so they become slower and they don't get to access that stretch shortening cycle that we talked about. I love that. That's such a great example. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, hopefully that hits home for a lot of coaches in that way. And uh like as a general rule, like it shouldn't, players shouldn't feel tension. They shouldn't feel like it's extreme effort to be moving in certain ways, right? Yeah, without a doubt. That's the, and that's what we say to them a lot is it should, you should feel effortless. Okay. You're going to have to now every athlete's a little different. We're going to have to help some of them. Maybe they have some kind of issue going on, but you shouldn't have to think about your movement. It should be a reaction to what's happening in front of you and you shouldn't have to fight it. It should be, you know, whether it's a lateral gait cycle or a linear gait cycle or a jumping pattern, they should come fairly easy to you, especially if you've had some exposure to playing quite a bit. So basketball players, and I know you've got this question a million times in your lifetime, how do I jump higher? But shouldn't we be equally obsessed with how do I land? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's it. Well, because and here, there's two reasons for that. Number one, we land to protect. Right. We land to protect. We got to protect ourselves. We want to be safe. We don't want to have a, a you know, a, a bad injury, but we also want to land to perform. So if I land well, OK, I'm going to probably protect myself pretty well unless somebody puts their foot underneath me and I land on their foot, which is tough to help sometimes. I should be good. But I also have to maybe jump again. Dennis Rodman, you know, three, four jumps in a row to keep a ball alive. He's not bending very much. He's popping off the ground almost like a jump rope, right? He's, he's just reaching really high. And then the other one is, what if I jump and I land and now all of a sudden I have to take off laterally or I have to take off forward or backward? So landing to perform is really important as well. And I have to be biomechanically sound and be able to put force into the ground. So when I teach jumping, I want players to be able to access their hips, but I also need them to access their quads, their thighs, because we don't always get a chance to do the perfect vertical jump like I'm getting it tested where I can really load my hips and jump. Sometimes I have to jump in a split second, and that's a very quad foot and ankle type jump where I just kind of pop off the ground very quickly. The better you get at that one, you're probably going to be more successful in basketball versus the, the athlete that can jump 45 inches, but they don't do the other things really well. So I'll give you an example. I think I actually may, maybe got this from you, maybe wrong, but it was basically two players would just run and jump into each, jump kind of into each other and kind of turn their bodies so they don't hit chest yeah. to chest, more shoulder to shoulder. But then that works on these really dynamic landings, right? And it's a really simple way to be able to develop that concept, right? It is too. And that's a great thing. We would use 
sometimes we would use the basketball. So if I had, if you were my partner and you're facing the backboard, I'm behind you, you jump, I just give you a nudge. Maybe I hit you in your left shoulder. So now you turn to the right, or I hit you in the right hip. Now you tilt a little bit. That happens all the time in the game. What I want to do for you is develop your, your proprioceptive system. In other words, your nerve sensing where you are in space. So body awareness, spatial awareness. That's important to develop. So doing that drill you're talking about where you contact, that happens probably on every play. There's contact and we now we have to regulate. We've got to be kind of like that cat, right? The cat that you think is going to fall on their back and they spin. We have to be like a cat and be able to land safely. So this is uh, every strength coach or movement specialist will love this comment, but I really think coaches should study you more, not just in terms of your knowledge, but in terms of how you teach. And I can already hear it in your phrasing here. The movement specialist just you do a much better job cueing and giving attention to what's important rather than what's unimportant. And that just seems to be a characteristic of, I don't know what it is, the time on task or the variables that you apply to your teaching. Can you talk a little bit about how you teach with cues? Yeah, I appreciate that too. I really do. And I think one thing I've tried to take pride in is, is my work in understanding learning. So one of the things that we like to do as coaches is we like to give a lot of information because we have information to give. We want to share that. We don't want to hold on to it. We want people to know we know stuff, right? So we give a lot of information. Well, what happens is athletes, even though they may be even more experienced, maybe you're seniors in high school or college players or NBA, well, everybody can only absorb information a little at a time. So let's say I tell them one thing, but if I make that one thing a dissertation of five sentences together, it still isn't impactful. So what I learned to do over the years is to connect words to the meaning or the action I want. So we have a technique and part of our shuffle technique is we call it a snap shuffle. When I yell snap shuffle, everybody knows exactly what I want. Rather than giving them two sentences, they immediately know. Well, that just takes a, an initial introduction. And I think that's missed in today's coaching is I always had a dry erase board at my practice and I could put notices or whatever had to happen or pre-workout stuff or whatever. But I would just write words down. This is our focus for today, team. Here's what I want you to think about. It might be a couple words, and then it resonated with them versus me talking for 10 minutes and then them being bored and not being able to, to understand it. So the cueing that I give attaches to the action that I want. And it's one word a lot or a short, short phrase. And then the athletes accept that because we all learn in chunks. We don't learn in these huge volumes of information. And then you can reduce those cues as they start to learn it more and only cue them when there's multiple outliers, correct? Yes. Yeah. Without a doubt. And the other thing is we want to make sure we, we praise things that are going to matter. So I give an example of I've seen well, coaches where you may have an athlete that does five things really well, five reps, right? And they're really, really good. They do one wrong and they get crushed. The coach just kills them. That's the time when you let that one bad one go. You just, because the athlete did it five times, maybe they slipped. Maybe they just, something happened, right? But if they did it five times wrong and one right, now what we do is we, we do this kind of summary feedback. Hey, Chris, what happened? What, did, what do you think happened on that? Why are you having a hard time? He said, coach, I just, I, I don't know that I understand it. Chris, that's my fault. I probably didn't explain it well. This is what I want you to do. Do you understand? Got it. 
Now we go on. Well, what I've done when I do that approach, I've cleared up the problem, but I've built confidence in you to not be afraid to ask me now. But if I yelled at you in front of the team because you screwed up, you think you're going to want to ask me anything after that? So we, we create this fearful environment to want to learn and want to ask. I think we got to be better at that. Have warm-ups become overrated, coach? The way in which typical warm-ups are done, yes. Um, if the rules allow. So if you're in season, you can obviously have a ball. If you're off season, depending on the level, sometimes you can't have a ball. They, you know, they might have a conditioning session or whatever. They can't, but whatever. When I do warm-ups, we are moving. Like we're doing things. If we can have the ball in our hand, we're doing stuff with the ball because we forget. A warm-up is I'm trying to elevate and heat the body, elevate temperature, heat the body, get blood flow going. That's going to give me some joint range of motion. It's going to prepare my tissues. And then I want to start to connect the mind and the body to what we're going to be doing. Well, there's so many ways to do that that are fun, that are uh, establishing learning of patterns, learning of, of motion. The old, you know, touch your toes, one, two, three, four, every up, clap once. You know, we just, we're not learning. The brain is not going through synaptogenesis, which is the form of learning. We have to be establishing some kind of a pattern that the athletes want to do. If they want to do it, well, then we're going to get better at it too. Like basketball is a warm up for basketball and <laughs> just a lower intensity is really the goal there. And uh, I, I love this because I, I still see these 20 minute dynamic warm ups without a ball. And I still see, see static stretching, which is also a little bit shocking. So you talk about static stretching and where its place is in, in movement specialist. Yeah. So when I had my dry erase board out, I can remember in particular, I had a couple, uh, when I was coaching my daughter's teams, I was a varsity coach and, and I had a couple players that had some chronic issues. So they had some bone rolling followed by a little bit of stretching to clear up their issues of tightness. That was it. Nobody else did that. When we started our warm-up, after they did their pre-practice you know, practice foam rolling or whatever we were going to do, they just I, I, I let them foam roll and talk with each other while I talked to my coaches. That was that. But once we got going, we did, like, for example, we might skip full court, but we did it with a ball. We were dribbling, doing what we call high dribbles, and then we would dribble backwards, doing backwards skips, and then we would do these, what we call spider walks with the ball. You know how you... you you take a long stride and you pass the ball between your legs. and you, So we're handling the ball all the time. And then we went into our dribbling routine at a little slower pace and gradually picked up. And, and I would ask the girls, are you ready? Are you, are you feeling it? Are you ready to go? Let's go, coach. We're good. And then I would pick it up. But we always had a ball in our hand. Here's the problem with static stretching. And I'm, I know there's a place for it. I understand the therapy of it. I get that. But... Most athletes don't understand how to position themselves and maintain that to even get a benefit from it anyway. So they're, they're doing it incorrectly in the first place. But even if we are doing it, why do we want to do something that subdues our system a lot before we want to get going fast? If you're going to do it, you got to at least make sure you follow it up with some explosive, quicker type motion. So your, your central nervous system is saying, okay, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready to go. So that's kind of my take on that. And I think you got to be, uh, we have as coaches have to, as basketball coaches have to understand that because the information's out there. We can find that in five minutes and then have a better take on it. So then go hand in hand with that. And let's talk about cool downs and the value of a lactic acid flush. And 
these different active recoveries more than these static recoveries. And then something like legs up the wall, these different things have been proven to be effective in terms of dissipating the lactic acid. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So we want to get and especially like, you know, we, we actually, you know, we have this lactic acid, but we also know that that has a positive effect. It's hydrogen that we really want to reduce its impact on the muscles and the body. But what we want is our body is designed with a bunch of pumps. When the muscles are contracting, they're actually pumping. Lymph and all that stuff is getting, getting put out into the bloodstream to be released through the body. So the more we move subtly, we're not talking about full speed anymore. Now we're talking maybe just some light walking, some light range of motion, even just circling your arms, doing some things like that. And then, like you said, we talk about getting down on our backs, putting our legs up against the wall, which starts to, what is, what's happening? Gravity starting to help us get some things out of our lower limbs and, and get near our heart where it can be pumped out. So doing some things like that and another effective strategy is to breathe in this longer form breathing, okay? It's a, it's a type of breathing that is allowing our, our sympathetic, which is our fight or flight, we're all hyped up. We got to get that back down to parasympathetic, which is now let's rest, let's digest, let's think again. And if we can get back to that, we recover better as a system. Then with this, this lower type of dynamic, smooth, fluid motions, We've cleared out the joints a little bit more and we've cleared out the soft tissues. And then that allows us to come back the next day at a better state as if we just finished practice, jumped in the car, went home and, and didn't do anything. That's great stuff. And I, I hope you're okay for me to be able to ask a few more questions. And, Please, uh, I love it. Uh, I'm loving this and really enjoying this conversation. And uh, let's go back a little bit to the teaching process and just, just in general terms, when you start working with an athlete or athletes, uh, do you focus on the general movement template before you get more sports specific? I think it depends. So if I have an athlete, and this is even a young athlete, okay, one of the biggest things that helps us gain um, attention and buy-in is giving them something that they want and giving them something that makes them exciting. So if I'm going to work on one of those general seven movement patterns, and let's just say the shuffle, but I use terminology and I give them context as to how to shuffle as a basketball player, because maybe that's why they're coming to me, right? And I say this shuffle to be able to defend somebody needs to be done like this. Here's how, here's the lateral gate. Here's how we do it. Imagine that offensive player is trying to drive by you and you want to cut that off. This is how we perform it. Well, I've given them context as to why that shuffle matters. But remember, the shuffle is a basic pattern of those seven movement patterns. So it becomes basketball when I'm on a basketball court. But if I'm on a soccer pitch, well, now it's marking a defender and I'm using it there. So all I've done is I've taken that general pattern and given it specificity because I've used the word defense in basketball. So that's how we can actually get in basketball a young 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old excited because I'm using phraseology that helps them understand, yep, this is going to make me better at basketball. But you and I know, hey, it's a general pattern they need anyway. And then I can talk about hands, you know, have one hand up if the ball's up or in the dribble lane. That stuff is easy to do. doesn't interfere with the general pattern. But again, Chris, the best way to coach is when we get buy-in, when when. 
when athletes start rubbing their hands together and say, oh, I can't wait for this, now you got them. And that's a good trick that I always try to use is when I knew they were coming the next practice or the next session, I'd always say, wait till next practice. Wait till, and they're like, what are you going to do? Ah, you wait till next practice. You'll see. So now they're coming in already ready to go. So my role as a coach is to support what you are helping a player achieve, which is a better movement pattern in some way. And the main way I can do that is to notice how it helps them as a player. So they come into a practice after they've worked with you for a while. And I say, hey, you know, that that you're doing there is really helping you do this better. So me connecting it and noticing it is the most powerful thing I can do for my movement specialist coach, isn't it? Oh, yeah, without a doubt, because now you've given them a reason to continue doing what they're doing. You've you've consolidated all that work into a success quotient. Now it's like, ah, there it is. I, I did all this work, wasn't sure. Now the coaches notice that I'm actually defending better or I'm offensively spacing better because my footwork is on par. I'm using the right transition footwork, you know, getting back on defense and the coach noticed that. That is one of the most powerful things. And I think, again, this is why as coaches, we need to reward effort and we need to reward attitude. Not always did the ball go in. If we base it on did the ball go in or did I get a steal, I might say, ah, Chris, you were right there. Great defensive effort. They just made a better pass. It just went over your fingertips. Your effort was great. Your footwork was great. Good job. You're going to get it next time. That's what you need to hear. You don't need to have me say, I didn't count if you don't steal it. That's not what you need to hear. You need to be rewarded because you can control your effort and you can control your approach to that effort. Uh, such a powerful understanding for all of us to know. And I, I talked about it with like freshmen coming into my college program. It was always like, almost like weight training was this extrinsic motivation first, which was, hey, you look better, you know? And that's like a powerful thing until you started to connect it and say, hey, now this is helping you play better. And that was really when you knew you had them excited to, you know, strengthen condition and get that next level of their game going. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And that's it. We all want praise. Not that we play the game just to get praise. We play because we want to be a part of a community. We enjoy that. But when you recognize their work and that they've made an improvement somewhere, it just feeds them wanting to do that. And they respect that. We, they appreciate that. So what, what maybe going back to the root of the problem, and you can't get into all of them, but what, what are some of the things that in general lead to people being poor movers? If we look, if we look at athletes, or let's you know, stick with basketball because it's very visual, that struggle to move really well. Oftentimes, they might just not have great genetic abilities. Like they just don't have a high amount of fast twitch fibers. They don't have a really uh, explosive nervous system that just attacks really well. The other thing is, and this is why we've got to be careful when we dismiss kids at a young age, is the, the strength, the relative strength meaning their body weight based on how strong they are is often off. So a young boy or a young girl that might not be very strong and has decent amount of weight to them, they might be a 120 pound athlete that's five foot one. 
which kind of hurts their strength or their movement ability because they're a little bit heavy. It'd be like taking a really good mover and putting a 25-pound weight vest on them and say, now go move. See how that feels, right? So we, what we have to be able to do is understand that we have to be able to start attacking uh, body positions that can overcome that lack of just raw strength and power. And this is why over the years I've taken athletes and, and putting them in a very high defensive stance just because they move easier. I know it might be a little bit too high, but for them right now, they've moved better. And then as they get a little stronger, I kind of stair-step them. Right, now let's just get a little bit lower because it's going to provide a couple more opportunities for you, but we're not going to get too low. That's once their, their ability catches up, right? So that's one of the first things. And then again, the other one that really affects them is too often they're put in programs that are built around change of direction training versus agility training. Agility training is based on reading. I see what you're doing. I make a decision by perceiving it, and then I react. Change of direction is saying run to that line, back, run to that next line, and back, that is a rehearsed pattern, like a dance. I can learn the steps and I can get pretty good at it. But then when somebody bumps me or dances faster than me, now I'm all screwed up again because I haven't been exposed to the reactive ability. And that's the one thing I think we have to get these athletes that don't typically move well, put them in environments where they have to learn to read, store memories, and then be able to use that over time. So many parallels to coaching basketball as a basketball coach. And, yes. and that's what I love about this. And the one I want to hit on here, which you've come to many times, is we too often think about our job to add things to an athlete. And I have to, in your example, I, they have to add physical things to the athlete. But really, your job is to create efficiencies, which lead to more effectiveness. And that is the same thing I say for skills coaches or team coaches is think about what things that you can actually help your athlete eliminate that helps them be more effective. For example, an extra dribble. They just become more efficient and more effective just by eliminating that. And by and large, that's your gift as a movement specialist, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think that's really what our, our job at the end of the day as basketball coaches, as basketball performance coaches, or you know, teachers of the game is to set our athletes up for success. Okay. Now, if we reverse engineer that, well, how do we do it? Do I give you 10 things to think about or do I give you one or two? Which one can speed up your learning process, can allow you to have a win every single day at practice and establish really good habits? Well, obviously one or two things because you can dial in on it. I can add multiple variations to that one skill. That one skill, I can give you lots of variation but your focus is still on that general movement pattern. But if I said today, Chris, I said, all right, we're going to work on passing and dribbling and shooting and all that, which is fine. But we're also going to work on how to defend on closeouts. And we're going to work on sideline out of bounds and then deep corner out of bounds plays. And then we're going to break a press. And then we're going to learn how to press someone. And that's only the first half of practice. Then we're going to, you know, kids are like, I don't know that if I learned anything today. I probably got worse today. But if I just said, hey, we're going to really focus on a couple things today and we're going to give you some context to that and we're going to we're going to figure this out. Now the athletes feel like they had a win and then the next practice they come in one step higher because they had a win. They learned something. 
Love that. And, uh, you know, maybe to wrap it up, coach, just uh, let's let's dive into this a little bit. And what are some things coaches who may not have access to a movement specialist do to help promote better movement patterns in their athletes? Because I know there's a lot of high school coaches, youth coaches, et cetera, that face that challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a big one. And I, I'm very sensitive to that because uh, I grew up in a coaching family and I've, I've worked and consulted with a lot of coaches who just don't have access to some of the things that others might have. But there's one thing everybody can do because it's it's readily available. You can Google it in two seconds or YouTube it or whatever, is understand the model of the basic movement. You're going to teach a defensive stance. What's the model? You're going to teach a defensive shuffle, a lateral run or a crossover. You're going to teach a jumping land. If you're going to teach them to sprint the court, understand the model. It's no different than understanding the model of shooting a jump shot. There is a way in which to shoot the ball with bandwidth, with variation. But basically, you know, there's a way we all know, you know, we there's some ways if we see somebody shooting it and it's, it's you know, way behind their head and they're rotating, we're like, okay, that's, that's not the model. So movement's the same way. Just understand the model, then build drills that establish that model every day. And do not try to hit home runs. Coaches make mistakes. They want to hit a home run. We're going to learn it today. No, you're not. What you're going to do is you're going to establish the, the thought process today. You're going to start them thinking about it, but they're going, to, they're going to learn it over the next week or two or a month, and they're going to get better at it every day. So don't put pressure on you as a coach or those players to learn it in a day. Just start establishing the model. What do you want it to look like? And then teach it each day. Tremendous stuff. And uh, basketballspeedspecialist.com as well to go to for uh... – more information on basketball-specific training uh, from Lee Taft and at Lee Taft on Twitter as well is a great follow. Uh, just tremendous stuff, Coach. You've done so much to be able to open all of our eyes about movement and uh, specific for me as a basketball coach, movement specific to basketball players. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Uh, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate it. Anytime I get a chance to talk basketball, that's a great day. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.